This is a weird mimosa. check failed and you're all alone there's only one action to take well maybe two it's a bonus action when the goblins are all around your rogue is dead and the cleric is down it's time to bust out and cast my favorite cantrip my favorite cantrip the one that makes you slow down my favorite cantrip go zip bit bang fizzle and boom my favorite cantrip shoot sparks and colored lights my favorite cantrip makes dope sounds in a room your sidekick has run far away your familiar's been sent back wild to the fae there's only one course to take make colored sparks and a hasty retreat Toll the bell and run like hell And pray to all the gods For my favorite cantrip (laughs) You slay me! No, really. It's because I'm a dragon. It could be. It is. It is because I'm a dragon. What kind of dragon? Silver. Are you? I am. Are you lawful good? No. But I am shiny. Hmm. I have a question for you later. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just bet you do. Yeah. Well, hi, Reagan. Welcome to my favorite cantrip. No, no. You're welcome to my favorite cantrip. No, you're welcome. No. You're welcome. You are. You're You're welcome. welcome. You're welcome. welcome. Thanks. Hey, dear readers. Listeners. (laughs) I just want to take a quick moment to share the deliciousness of the fish patties Lance made us for dinner Mm, tonight. I made some pretty good fish patties. They were delicious. They were good. And uh, hey, we're sitting about 15 feet apart because (laughs) guess what? Guess what? I might have COVID. (laughs) The wonderful times we're living in. That's what you get Yay. for being a nice guy. So if I say anything really weird about like dragon dicks or anything like that, <laughs> we're just going to chalk that right on up to a virus. Yeah, you you can try that, but I, I think everyone knows better. Do they? Don't they? I would really like to shout out, for those who don't know, dear listeners of My Favorite Cantrip, we've got this Patreon page. We do. Um, where we uh, ask for people's support. And, hey, we give really great stuff, I think, in <laughs> return. I'll, I'll literally give you the shirt off my back. Literally, that is something you can get on our website. But, dear listeners, I'd like to give a shout-out and, and thanks to our very, very first subscriber to our Patreon, 
It was the most exciting moment to get our first Patreon really Survivor. Really Survivor? Was. Our first Patreon Survivor. Oh, oh my, my God. God. First Patreon what is happening? Subscriber. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Uh, wow. That was a Freudian slip and a half. That's not being edited. Um, <laughs> but I really want to thank uh, Kate Russell and the whole Russell family for uh, subscribing to our Patreon and for being number one. Number one. Numero uno. Russell family, you are number one to us. Forever. Forever. You will we always will be the first. We will never have another first Patreon subscriber. Nope. And you are special in our heart. The fact that we could actually post COVID give you a hug is Assuming amazing. we all survive. Assuming we do. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, friends. You're the okay, best. Okay, on with the show. What do yep, you think? Let's do it. Great. So what do we want to talk about first? You know, we've been on the air for uh, a theoretically while. a month. Yeah. And hopefully you guys are enjoying what we're putting out. Uh, are you picking up what we're putting down? Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. Silence. Who are you talking to? Me? Stunned. The listeners? I was talking to the listeners, but you looked like you wanted to respond. So who is the first character that you have played that people met? That I have played. That you played. Uh, I've played Uskar Fireforge, uh, otherwise known as Oscar Tinker. Oscar yeah. Tinker. Yeah. Yeah. That's and how I, you say it, right? Oscar? Well, that's how the unwashed say it. <laughs> He's made his way through the world by, you know, tinkering on things and making little things. So sure, you know, the humans or whatever call him Oscar. But yeah, his name is Uskar Fireforge. Uskar. Uskar Fireforge. Uskar. Yes. He had a successful trip to the Antique Mall, right? Well, he nearly died at the Antique Mall. What? Yeah. I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me. I really like the world you've got started there for Uskar to play in. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've got planned in the future there in the world? Well, I, I could tell the listeners, but I'm not going to tell you. Oh, fair so, enough. So uh, could you just leave for a yep. second? Oh. <laughs> No, no. So, uh, yeah, fuck that guy, Uskar. <laughs> I want to ask you a question. Okay, go for it. We've been doing duets for a little while now, a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And it was really kind of the first thing that you picked up on as a DM. Right. What do you like about the idea of a duet story? Just one player and one DM. What fires you up about creating a duet and why do you want to do it in the first place? Well, I think it's very driven by the deep and abiding loneliness inside my soul and my existential right, dread. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, As your husband, I can really appreciate the deep <laughs> and abiding loneliness in your soul. Right, right. Cool, 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 cool. Um, do continue. <laughs> it's the Sisyphean task. No. Uh, I, I am a giant stone. You have to push up a hill every day. Every it's true. day. Every day. rolls right back day, down the hill at listener. the end of every damn day. I think part of the fun of a duet <laughs> is that you can think big while focusing small. Because if you only have one character, it's like a short story about one character, but that works its way through a world that you can alter. So it's the Twitter of D&D, &D, what you're telling me. <laughs> no, and you shut your whore mouth. It's not the Twitter. It's the Facebook compared to the live journal. Ooh. Live journal? What's I, that, I Reagan? went deep there, What's didn't that? I? <laughs> Dear listener, for those of you no, uh, who aren't don't 803 years old. If they old, don't know, 
If they don't know, they don't need to know. They can Google. Did you just tell our listeners that if they don't know, they don't need to know? <laughs> they can Google. <laughs> Go Google Live Journal. Okay, boomer. <laughs> I am not a boomer. So I think you might be. You literally have just referenced Live Journal. I think that might that make you a boomer. That is not a boomer thing. Lance. Okay. All right. No. Hey, no. Uh, everybody, go check out our MySpace page <laughs> when you're done here. All right, now you're boomering. I'll just say MySpace was a hit about five years after Live Journal. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. MySpace no. was big in Stop. 2007 and 8. This is fascinating content. Live Journal was like 19. We're talking Web 1.0, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> okay. So what I like about the duet is that you really can tell big stories, but you're doing it through the framework of one character. That can be really fun. The engagement of a party is part of what drives a campaign, and that is a very different collaborative energy. But a duet is a really intense collaboration between two story builders in the form of a character that may or may not do what you think it's gonna do, and the DM who may or may not build a world that the character understands or, or inhabits fully until they get there. So there's this really interesting dynamic that happens, and it's probably the most intimate form mm -hmm. of collaborative storytelling that I know how to play. There have been multiple times that you and I have been playing duet. I've gotten very emotional. Yeah. I've teared up because something is so intimate and unexpected. Duet play really is intimate and personal. Mm. Um, there's only one player. And if something happens to them, the whole world is gone. Yeah. That's it. There's it's, really high stakes. There are. It's not like in a party campaign, well, whoever that player is who lost their character just rolls up another character, and the campaign has continuity because there are other people inhabiting the world that continue on. In a duet, when, if, something happens to that player character, that's just it. Yep. I've learned that firsthand more than once. The interesting thing is the flip side of that. When you're DMing, you have to decide... Do I follow through on what is mechanically happening or do I have basically a deus ex machina that kind of swoops in and saves the day somehow? That can happen in campaign play too, but in a duet, there's something like as the DM, you really have to ask yourself, am I ready to give up this character? The DM is much more of an integral part in a duet. It really is a revolving, uh, an atomic revolution of the DM and the player are both electrons, both revolving around this kind of nucleus of, of the story. Without one of them, well, you're no longer deuterium, are you? You're just regular <laughs> hydrogen. And regular hydrogen is like great and all, but it's kind of boring, right? You can't make heavy water out of regular hydrogen. And back around to the existential dread. <laughs> I want to put a pin in something you've just said there, the idea of the deus ex machina and that kind of idea. I want to swing back on that in a later question. We've got some questions from listeners that I want to get to tonight. But that idea of when is it appropriate mm. for a DM to overrule the rules? Yeah in that fashion because obviously rule zero is the dm's word goes and you and i yeah. both practice that rule zero so we are, we are putting a pin in that, in that then mm. 
what kind of content do you like to to create in a duet situation knowing that it's going to be so intimate knowing that it's going to be so personally involved I'm going to admit that in addition to thinking of ways to challenge the actual character, because this challenge is in a D&D mechanics sense or challenge story-wise, personality-wise, challenge how? Yes, and. I'm going to say yes to all of that because I am much more... Well, that's boring. Yeah, well, let me explain. <laughs> <laughs> As a DM, I tend to be more story-driven than mechanics-driven. That's kind of my thing. Sometimes I'll just throw mechanics out the window in some ways. I am likely going to get added a lot in the, the coming months and years together. Um, and I get corrected a lot, for, sometimes even by my players who are like, actually, what that says. That's fine by me in the sense that sometimes I'm willing to go, oh, okay, thanks for updating me. And sometimes I'm willing to say, in this particular circumstance, the rules of physics have changed, you know? Because do you find I, that there's only sometimes that you can do that that makes it effective? Yes. Yes, I do find that you have to pick and choose where you're going to do that. You and I have talked about this many times before, but I am the queen of taking something that exists and doctoring it to make it be what I want it to be in the story because I want the story to work for the character. It's not that I'm trying to drive the character, it's that I want the character to be engaged but also challenged so that they have to give their own feedback into the story. And so we've that talked it about that as well in the context of experienced players because one way of keeping the player engaged is is obviously there's a there's a metagame aspect right. of trying to keep the player's knowledge out of the player character's <laughs> right. knowledge, particularly if they fail a history or an arcana or religion check yeah. or whatever you're using to. So that's very much true, and you you do adjust. But I think I think all good DMs do that to some degree. Can I just share one of my favorite moments where I did that? Yeah. This was from one of our table games. We took a weekend with some friends, and uh, we were going to play a, a quick campaign that weekend. And yeah, six months quick. later, <laughs> <laughs> six months later, we're still playing. I'm sure anyone who has ever DM'd has been there before. Yeah. There was a moment when you were coming up against vampires, and you knew they were vampires. Um, but what you didn't know was that one of the characters, one of the NPCs had a cute little dog that was the worst kind of vampire. It was a vampiric mist dog. And so I had homebrewed it. And every there were several experienced players. And the really experienced players were so frustrated because they couldn't figure out what was happening. And as a DM, that was a really great moment because they had been like, I know what that is. I know what that is. I know what that is. And I was like, you're not going to know what this is. Ha, ha, ha. But it's not in an adversarial way. It's in a like here's something that we're all going to laugh about it's in later. a way it's in an effort to keep things engaged yeah right so how does that play out in duet play where again you don't have a party who are all trying to figure this thing out you've got one player character i think that it's about looking at what does the pc want to do like what do they seem to be engaged by most and also, what do they seem to want to be doing with their character? And then how can I create opportunities for them to get to do those things? Sam snorkeling happens frequently. You end up going, and then I made a whole thing up. And that can be really fun too. But the reality that of me as a DM is that my goal is to try to find routes 
for you to get to have the experiences as a PC that you want to. How do you build those things that are different and engaging, particularly for maybe an, an advanced player right. who does know all these different kind of metagame things? How do you keep that engaging for one player? Really, I think that's about communication and collaborative story building. Mm. Don't I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about that because for me it's very much about eye contact and communication and, and trying to read between the lines sometimes of what someone is indicating their interests are as far as their character growth. What, what do you think? Yes, in an intimate, personal, duet kind of situation, how do you keep a story engaging and different? I would agree with practically everything you've said. I think the key there really is about the communication. And mm -hmm. it's not just communication in gameplay. It's communication beforehand. It's acknowledging that what you're about to do is one-on-one -on -one creating a story together. You and I have duetted enough now to know that there are no distractions. There's no opportunity for yeah. the player or the DM to kind of sit back and, and let the group dynamic tell the story for you. In a duet, the player and the DM both have to be engaged and on board 100% of the time. Oh yeah. Frankly, duet play can be exhausting. Oh yeah, you can't you can't do a six hour duet. No. Well, you can, but not effectively. Right. I think. And where you know you and I would maybe do a four or five hour session with a four or five person group, we do really well to 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 get two two and a half hours of of duet play done. So. Yeah, I think we played for like three and a half hours on one and we're duet, knackered. and we were done. Yeah, completely like we were cooked, done. We went to separate rooms. Yeah, and recognized that the last hour of play was 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 pretty useless. Yeah. So communication beforehand on expectations. We've gotten to where we communicate very heavily. Whichever one of us is the DM will really help the the player define and refine what kind of character they're going to build, and then based on that communicate with them about what kind of experience they want that character to have. So then from the get-go, we've got a better understanding of what's happening there. One of my favorite, the first homebrew campaign I ever built was for a duet that I ran for you yeah. with your character Perga. <laughs> Perga was great, dear listener. Perga was a... That, uh, was, a, that was a really Well, why don't campaign. you tell them about Perga? Oh, she... She was a dragonborn paladin, but she had been a little foundling baby, so she was raised as a scribe. She was very unassuming and naive. She was young. She went out into the world. She wasn't the greatest paladin, I'll, I'll say that, but gosh darn it, she was trying to do some good <laughs> in the world and make some friends who didn't really want to be friends with a dragon lady. But I really loved the partnership of Perga mm -hmm. and the NPC helper, Bayro, <laughs> uh, the elf monk. And we had a lot of fun. Oh, gosh. We kind of ran out of room because we discovered you created a character and I created a world. And at some point, they diverged. They did diverge, yeah. In a really interesting way, the last um, session that we played of that was 
so engrossing. Like yeah. that was one that I was thinking about when I, you know I got emotional. I do want to comment on Bayro really quickly. It isn't always easy to play your own sidekick or your own NPC support. And it can be really fun to have the DM do that for you because it allows them to give you some some interaction but also some engaging content without knowing whether it's content or not so it can be sometimes it's just little communications like i would frequently ask this npc questions and oh he'd give an answer but whether it was going to help me or not because he spoke like a zen monk so it, it was really fun to try to piece through that and to try to decide which honestly it was really fun to play that as a dm yeah. too trying to to answer the question and be a good companion without giving <laughs> things away and dear listener this was uh, uh this was before the wizards of the coast sidekick rules right. came out those came out first in an unearthed arcana article if you all remember Bayro was actually a, a rolled up character just like any other pc but he was an npc or a dmpc that was a lot of fun and and he built a personality perga had a personality <laughs> and together they they really had a good time but the story and the character ended up diverging mm-hmm. and i'm not sure looking back on it now having this conversation it might be a little bit of what we're talking about here in the sense that, again, you built a character, I built a world, and we didn't really communicate with each other right. about the what those were going to be. We didn't really understand how important that would end up being. Right. We just kind of thought we could work it out as we went along. Right. I think quality duetting requires a lot of touch points that you have to check in over the screen with more frequency than you would with your campaign It's a negotiated relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Highly negotiated. What are you into? Uh, Yes, there's some books out there on that, I think, Uh, and maybe even some some, uh, online groups for that. But uh, moving forward, what do you think we're doing differently? We've now played two duet campaigns, uh, one of each where I've played Uskar Fireforge and you've played Quarian Meliamne. I have. What are we doing differently? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What are we doing differently now than maybe we did two years ago? Right. Well, I think one of the big things is that we gave each other our character sheets ahead of time, (laughs) which that would be a first thing. But also we spent some time talking about the type of character that we were intending to roll up. Yeah. We talked about the backstory of the character we we each had awareness of the backstory that that the character was going to be right and then also in creating the world i don't want to say that we went as far as to say what types of experiences do you want to have because we didn't have that conversation but getting a vibe in talking about tell me about this character walk me through the backstory and we did go to that step of we had the written backstory but then we also said can you tell me about this character because you'll pick up things when somebody's talking about a character that you don't necessarily get from the written version. So what I hear you saying, and I think I would concur, as the DMs, we are driving the world that we're building and the story that we're building solely focused on that character. It's character-driven in a way that before, or in a larger campaign, can be about creating a world 
a sandbox for the players to play in, this kind of duet play has to be much more character driven to that specific character. Because you're right, we in, in all of these, and dear listener, we have, we have six different yeah. duet campaigns in the works right now. Today. Now you've only heard yeah. two. We're building those in, in a way that is much more character centric. I know that I, in particular, am building Quarian's world very much on what I think who you've told me Quarian is. Yeah. And we'll see where it goes, but certainly the first episodes are going to be based on the backstory. Right. And whereas maybe in a, in a group campaign where the backstories are something that the character, the player character uses to just inform their action and play, they don't form the actual world itself. It's almost different here in duet play yeah. where the character's backstory is actually creating the world and the story that, that we're moving forward on. And I, I think it kind of has to. It's mm-hmm. not that I think you can't just build a sandbox and invite the char- the PC to come in and play in it. I think that is a way to do it, but it's a little bit less interesting because when you're in duet play, really what you have is almost an author-character relationship, right? When you're writing fiction... Sometimes your character goes a direction you don't expect mm, and you right. kind of have to just trail after them and be like, I'll catch up and I'll make the story work. Right. Sometimes when you're writing fiction, the converse is true. You kind of build a direction and, and the character follows you. This kind of functions that way because if you aren't taking into account the character's backstory and you aren't taking into account the interests of the player you're going to have a harder time getting a nice organic engagement with the overall story. Um, And again, you can build a beautiful sandbox and somebody can have a wonderful time playing in it. So it's not that that can't work, but you're right in group play, the group dynamic takes front seat where in duet play, the PC engagement takes front seat, which sounds similar, but it's not quite the same. Sounds almost like, well, duh. (laughs) <laughs> but, but I don't think it is well done. Mm-hmm. And and really, I was sitting thinking while you were saying that it, in good duet play, both the player and the DM are both author mm-hmm. and character. Yes. Um, and deeply engaged in that. They're both first person. They're both third person. They're both every point of view in the story at some point in that story. Both have to be engaged the whole time. Dead on. Yeah. It's everything you need to know about duet play, right? Well, I don't know if it's everything <laughs> you need to know. It's certainly kind of our hot take on it. Yeah. We both are about the character and about the story. For me, the mechanics are super important because at the end of the day, if you're going to ignore the rules, then you're not playing a game anymore, are you? And it is really storytelling, but it's storytelling in the confines of a game system that we happen to love and enjoy. And really, the game system will tell its own tale sometimes. Oh, yeah. and We talk about the the dice gods all the time. Yeah, which is one of my favorite things, is that even sometimes, and this happened in another duet session that you and I were doing, where you were desperately trying to keep my character from dying. Right. And I couldn't, the dice were not having it, and I changed the dice out. Nothing. Nothing. That character was going to die. Yep. That was it. That was the story that needed to be told. And once we kind of 
relaxed into that and were like, this is happening, it became a much more interesting game session. Well, I think you just hit the nail on the head there with something, too. We, as players, get really involved with trying to direct the way things are going to happen, right? And this gets a little bit back towards character building. Uh, I won't say metagaming, but definitely building characters based on using mechanics and and so on to to have it go a certain way. Now, we all do that, right? You have to do that because if you want this person that you're playing to be a certain way, well, it's the mechanics that make that happen. As roll it and play it proves again and again and again. So, exactly. This person that that we're building really is those mechanics. Like, who wants to build a monk if you can't do a flurry of blows, right? (laughs) Right. That's that's completely a game mechanic, but it's part of what makes that character so, so fun in the first place. But at the end of the day, each of those mechanics is strictly going to be up to the to the roll of the dice. Your character in that duet session was doing everything they possibly could and using every mechanic and tool at that character's <laughs> disposal, and the dice just wouldn't have it. Nope. They didn't care what the personality of that character was. They didn't care what the, what the mechanics said. They didn't care. Sometimes the game and the dice tell their own stories. And once you relax into that... Yeah and just let it happen, then you can really have a good time with that. So I think that's another thing that, that we don't talk about very often, maybe as much as we should. There's really three people <laughs> playing. The dice gods are one of them. Yeah, there's the dice gods or, or the mechanics or the rule system, whatever you want to call it, and then the DM and, and the player. So. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's one of the things that is actually really delightful about the fact that I think it's really important that this is stated on the cover of all the books as a role-playing game. Right. It's not a mechanic playing game. It's a role-playing game. And I, I understand that there are a lot of people that love mechanics and love... You're going to be them. added so hard. I know. I'm going to be added a lot. But mechanics <laughs> are important. I'm trying to say that the role-play part is so fun. If you are so statted out that you can't let the story unfold the way that the dice are unfolding it for you you really miss out on something that is super super fun about this game because that that chance that comes from making the whole world built on dice rolls is a delight and tells a fascinating story in and of itself and some of my favorite moments have been on things that could truly have been a frustrating dice roll like roll it and play it that's to me that's part of what's so fun about the roll it and play it is just the whole idea of here's a druid and it's got a wisdom of eight <laughs> and it just has to move through the world it's like just got to move through the world exactly yep. and and then maybe we should probably move on from this we should topic. move on to the questions but yeah. like any game if you stack the deck it's just not as fun it's not it's not it's, it's a lot more fun. fun if you just see what happens yeah. Because it's a role-playing game, it's not a winning game. Yeah. I do want to come back one, really quickly to that thing that we put a pin in about the, the 25 minutes ago. The flapping butterfly on the wall? Yes. Uh, poor thing. Let's put it out of its misery. Um, <laughs> we would never pin a butterfly When do wall. you think, uh, understanding, wouldn't we? No, we would not. 
What about all those little boxes that kids collect where they where they pin butterflies and moths to the inside? Yeah, that that's not a thing we I mean, do. I've never done that, but no. people do it. No, not you, not not us people. Okay, no. all right. Understanding, it's a given. <laughs> Says it in every rule book. Rule zero, DM is the final arbiter. Yep. Right. However, sometimes it's wise to overrule a character on something. Yeah. Sometimes it's not. Yeah. For instance, there's always the incidents where the DM and the player character are interpreting a rule differently. Correct. Or where the DM wants a role and the player character doesn't want to make the role. Or the circumstances of the world dictate this, that, or the other thing. But then there's sometimes there's the things where quite clearly the rule or the magic item or the whatever it is says the player character can do this. Where's the line, Reagan? Where's the line for <laughs> when a DM can overrule something? So I think hot that, take. Hot take. I think I think I have two separate responses for two separate circumstances. Cool. Um, one is that um, I'm a I'm a big fan of the. Can you read me the language of that? Right. Um, and I like to put that on the PC. Because I think the PC needs to know their stuff. Hmm. And if they're like, well, it doesn't work that way. And you say, okay, can you read me the language of that? Let's get on the same page right. is what is the offer that you're making there. And I think that in that circumstance, if it's interpretable, then there's a quick conversation that needs to happen. So that's one part of it. The flip side of that is that I would argue that at any moment a DM can require a role on something because the PC may or may not have all of the information they think they do. Uh -huh. So there's that moment, and I, I think both of us have talked about being here before, there's that moment where a PC is like, I want to do this thing, and it should work like this. And you're like, what you don't know is the thing that is five feet ahead of you, so the second you do that, it's going to make this happen. Right. And so you say roll, and they're like, it doesn't work that way. And you're like... Stop messing with my narrative. Like, or sure, go ahead and blow that thing that's about to happen to you. And you can let that sort of thing unfurl, but it can be very frustrating when it's pulled in front of the screen. And from the DM's perspective, you're coming from a point of narrative because you are omniscient. You know more about the world than the PC does. I'm going to throw one more thing in here, too. And so, so you have three, not two. Apparently, I do. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a prong. Uh, I'm a fork instead of just a tined. You know, I, I don't, uh, I'm most not forks sense. started off with two tines. I'm an advanced fork. Advanced fork. <laughs> I, I, I ain't no primitive Dear fork. Dear listener, you are privileged to hear some advanced <laughs> forking right Here's here. Here's some advanced forking for advanced you. Advanced forking. I also think that at some points... The DM can be wrong, but to keep the movement of gameplay going, mm. the DM has to push forward on where they are because otherwise you're going to get bogged down in pulling out 10 books and arguing. And I don't think that that is great for gameplay. I would agree with that. I think. So what do you think about that? Well, I think uh, um, I fall down in, as you probably figured I would, pretty close to where you are on that as well. I will often make a decision in gameplay that may or may not be raw, right? May or may not be rules as written that 
make contextual, critical thinking sense for what's happening right then and there. And then, you know what, if the player wants to at me about it later, sure. After the gameplay session, we yep. will look up the rules, we will want it, we'll work it out, we'll negotiate it, and can say going forward, this is the way we'll treat that situation going, going forward. I think a lot of DMs do that. I definitely know that a lot of podcast DMs do that because you can't, you can't burden your, your performative play right. with an interruption to spend 30 minutes arguing over the interpretation of a rule when, again, rule zero says the, D, the DM is the adjudicator. Exactly. So I think that's true. I also agree completely with the idea that the players may ask to do something or want to do something, and they may or may not know what's coming or how that will affect. Now, I think I differ from you a little bit in the sense that you said something very important. You said, it's my narrative. Well, it's our narrative. Uh, now you're backing off, but you, you said that, and I think as someone who is a writer and a storyteller, I think in a lot of ways, it's part of the power that you bring to your DM stories, you have a narrative. Sure. And sometimes I think with, with some people, it's gotten to where it can be where the DM's narrative has become at odds with the player's desire to fully inhabit their, their roles. Then there's a problem. Sure. Um, but I think I always want to let a character try yeah. something. They may roll a 32 on their skill check or whatever it is. They still may not succeed right? because they don't know everything. I'm rarely going to say, well, you don't know what's coming, so I'm not going to let you try that thing. I don't care. If you want to try whatever that thing is, great. Try it. And we will let the chips fall where they may when that thing that was five feet ahead, right. whatever. And then maybe the player characters will learn at some point to maybe not be rash or hasty. But That was something it took me a while to learn as a yeah. DM is – to let people roll no matter what. Right. And it's funny because as a PC, there's nothing I love more than rolling right. dice. Right. So I don't know why as a DM, it took me a while to be like, no, let them roll every single time and just set your DCs. Well, and you don't even necessarily have to set a DC. If it's not ever going to happen, just let it not ever happen. <laughs> right. Now, some people may not want to hear that. A couple of the questions that we got kind of refer to this player DM relationship that we're that we're talking about right right and sometimes to keep that relationship interesting and engaging you let the player character try the thing even yep. though you as the dm know damn well that there's nothing in the story that's going to allow them to succeed at whatever that crazy ass <laughs> thing that they think <laughs> they're gonna do is and sometimes though i'm i'm thinking of a specific podcast crazy ass you know uh dc roles that they nailed yeah and so well at some point too you let them have it yeah and if that throws your narrative out then, of whack then well you then guess it. what it throws your narrative out yeah. of whack and that's part of the collaborative storytelling process too i've done that as a as a yeah. dm before yeah and it is actually sometimes quite the treat. I'm thinking about a time with you as a PC yeah. where you had a strong desire to 
and I can't remember exactly mechanically what you were doing, but you wanted to throw another character and use Misty Step yeah. in partnership with throwing them. And at that moment, it was nerfing me so hard, <laughs> and I didn't care because right. that shit was funny. And I was like, just watching that happen and seeing if you can roll to make that happen is worth being nerfed a thousand right. times just because that was that was an awesome moment for a player character to try something amazing right. and that's, sometimes you just do that and that's part of what i love about that dm player character dichotomy because you know you don't have to be some sort of crazy ass min maxed whatever to nonetheless know your character yep. to know the mechanics to know your magic items and your spells to know what they can do and not do and when that moment comes where you say, I'm going to do this, and the DM says, read me the language. <laughs> and you read them the language, and you can see the look in their face where they go, there's absolutely nothing in there that will allow me to say no. Exactly. You get that kind of, well, damn, yeah, look yeah. on your face. I like that. And I yeah. like that when that happens to me, where the player knows what they're doing, not because they've stacked the deck in their favor, but because they know what they're doing and it fits in with their character personality and you're just like, you just throw everything up in the air. And you're like, hell yeah, let's see whether you can do that or not. And they succeed and everybody cheers. And, and then you celebrate together and that, it's awesome. You do. And that makes a really memorable D&D &D session. Yeah. That's the ones that, that people people remember. 100%. So. 100%. Do you want to get to some, uh, do you want to get to some questions? I so do because I'm so excited that we have them. I know. So just a quick moment, dear listeners, to remind you, you too can send us questions. Absolutely. And we will answer them. And as you are about to hear, it doesn't matter what the questions are. <laughs> we're going to answer them. So uh, and why if don't you, you hit us with them? If you want to send us a question, if you're a Patreon subscriber, obviously you can send that through the Patreon system. You can uh, hit us up on Twitter at my fave cantrip or you can send us an email go to the website my so favorite old school right go to the website my favorite and there's a contact form on there send us a question we'll uh we'll, we'll add it to the list reagan lance serious question or not so serious question well we've first? been serious talking for a we while have. i think not serious although frankly i think these are all deadly serious questions i agree so i'm going to go ahead and start with the most serious one great what color is your favorite d8 <laughs> my favorite d8 yeah Ooh. not your d10 i know what you're thinking well i really want to talk about my d10 no no your favorite Fav d8 favorite d8 yeah mm. you know if it just you would get you where you live doesn't i it? know if you would ask d20 even that would be no. a, such a different conversation well, see that's you know that's the given right honestly yeah I have one that is clear but has sparkly silver glitter in it. Oh. And as far as a D8 goes, like, I always want to pick that one does up. Does it just aesthetically please you? It does. Mm -hmm. There is something about the glitter right. in those flat sides yeah. that just delights me. And almost every time I play, I end up pulling that D8 out. Interesting. There's no valid reason for huh. it. Does it roll very well? I don't know. I just think it's pretty. <laughs> Nobody pays attention to a humble D8. When was the last time you picked up a D12 and just, like, spent a little time with it? I know, right? Right? Like, it hardly ever gets used I'm anyway. I'm going to do it right now. Okay. While you're doing that, Hi, why don't D12. you tell me what color your favorite D8 is? Hello, D12s. <laughs> Poor unloved D12s. 
I'll tell you the the ones that I'm loving right now. Okay. I got digging around doing some straightening up. <laughs> I find this to be the funniest story ever. About a week ago. And I discovered two whole sets of dice <laughs> in a box that I didn't know existed. How do you lose two whole sets of die? Well, I, I think I'll tell you. So what got us going on D&D in the first place in this modern era mm -hmm. was uh, when 5th edition came out, they released a new starter set. And we found it in a, uh, I hadn't thought about D&D in 20 years. And we found this at a game shop and I got so fired up. And I remembered the great red box set from back in the day and, and I bought it. And it sat on a shelf for three years. A set of dice came with that box. <laughs> and sat The same there. day that we <laughs> bought that set, I was like, I didn't know that there was a set of dice in there. So I bought a set of dice at the game shop. I pulled them out and played with them a little bit, and I stuck them in a box. And I hadn't seen them since 2015 until last week. <laughs> and there they are. And they're pretty plain. They're both blue. One's just an opaque blue with white letters and one is kind of a, a clear dark blue with white letters, but they're just satisfying. They're nice dice, they roll well. Hey, Lance, can you pick up both sets of those dice in, in your little gnomey fingers yeah. and just shake them under the microphone yeah. and just share the... Oh. Uh-oh. Hey, that was a D10 dropped out. What, what'd That's you a, get? It's a six. A six, Thoroughly average. <laughs> Not bad at all. So yeah, I think those are uh, these two blue D8s that I found. Mm -hmm. um, in a box mm -hmm. are my so favorite blue. D8s right now. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. Though I do have one that you got me uh, yes. for the holidays this year uh, made out of Labradorite that has a, just a lovely kind of sheen on the D8. You know that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that was a great first question. What's your favorite color dragon dick? <laughs> it's all about the color tonight, isn't it? Is. It is. Uh, well, I think based on my earlier answer, we know the answer is going to be silver. Why silver? Because it is shiny, uh -huh. and it it has a sense of coolness. Coolness, you say? And yet, I think it would contain some heat. <laughs> I mean, you're the one that asked about. Actually, you're not the one that asked about. I'm dragon not dicks. asked uh, that. <laughs> generally, uh, folks, dear listeners, that actually came from one of our correspondents. <laughs> so we did not. We did not. I didn't come up with that. <laughs> Lance. Yeah. Same question. What's your favorite color of dragon dick? Choose Black. carefully. Black. You're going there. Why would that be? Because black dragons are dope. <laughs> they live in swamps. They're thoroughly evil. And they spit acid, Reagan. Um, What's the next question, In Lance? the absence of black, I'll take red. Because it's... Because it's hot and spicy? Yeah, and I, I really have this lovely picture of these uh, little red dragons uh, kind of warming up some spa waters. Um, With their dicks? Sure, why not? What's the next question, Lance? <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite ration recipe? <laughs> oh, oh, man. When you go adventuring and you take your iron rations with you, what do you <laughs> like to have in your pouch? I'm going to tell you. That lately, I, w I think my ration recipe would have to be heavily based on um, dates. Oh. Yeah, I think I would want a, a sticky now, base. Like chopped dates with sweet. coconut? 
Yeah. Or like I, whole dates? No, I think I think chopped dates with coconuts. Dates with graham crackers and chocolate? No graham crackers, but some chocolate maybe, some chocolate, some coconut. If I could eat nuts, some maybe some nuts in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, heavy protein, high sugar, so that uh, but but all organic, all natural. Have you ever made date syrup? I have not made date syrup. Uh, have, have you ever you? had date syrup? I have not had date syrup. Have you ever had syrup on a date? It's entirely possible I have had syrup on a date. Don't ask me for a date on the date that I had the date with syrup. <laughs> hey, what Yo, would your rations be made of? You know, I'm really partial to a meat cup. <laughs> you can't go wrong with you a meat cup. You can't go wrong with a meat cup. Particularly when they are able to be bought for uh, just a copper or two from the local uh, food cart, food wagon, uh, outside the town currently being besieged by goblins. Well, and they feature heavily with bacon, and you they can't do anything that involves bacon. You know, have you ever had a sausage meat cup? I have. They're pretty good, yeah. They're delicious. Yeah. Throw some dates in there. Mm, yeah, okay, I'd take that. In sausage? And yes. a little syrup on that bad boy. <laughs> you ever had syrup with your sausage? Full circle. Full circle. Full circle. Full circle. What's High five from here. We, we are nowhere near Now, if I don't have a meat cup, I'm going to tell you something that I think would be perfectly appropriate that I just saw on our favorite current television show right now, which, oh. dear listeners, is a show called Time Team. <laughs> And if you like D&D, I'm going to guess you like archaeology at least a little at bit. At least a little. Because they're digging up old shit, right? But apparently a Neolithic hand food mm. was this kind of version of, of roti or, or naan nice baked on, on a hot bread. stone into a cup shape. If you put it on a curved stone, it makes it into a hand-sized yeah. cup shape. And then you can fill it with, like, cooked fish and, and herbs or roasted vegetables and just kind of eat it like a little pie outside of a meat cup. Kind of a Neolithic taco would be my, uh, would be my choice. <laughs> Neolithic taco would You're be a Neolithic great taco. band name. <laughs> <laughs> Let's ask one of the lighthearted ones. Uh, what do you say? Oh, these have been the serious ones. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my. Now, this uh, was sent to us by our uh, friend, the Sea Elf Ranger, Hervin with Rethin. How do players and the DM work together to get what they both want in a campaign, yet neither feel bored or uninterested? Communication, communication, communication. Mm. Okay. Dial down into that a little bit. <laughs> Everyone involved in that equation has to be upfront about their hopes. It doesn't mean you're always going to get it. Upfront when? During gameplay, before you start a campaign? Ideally when? before you start a campaign, mm -hmm. but also checking in during gameplay. Like I I don't think that the only conversation you should have about desires and expectations in a campaign is before your first session. I think you have to keep touching base as you go along. The other piece of that is what I like to refer to as the yes and mm -hmm. um, element, mm -hmm. that you, this is improv. At the end of the day, even if you're uh, just at a, table g at a table game and it's you and your friends, there is always an aspect of improv that goes along with this. I think there's less less need for that at a table game because you're not performing for anybody, right? But right. 
But you still have to yes and on one another yeah. because if every time I say my character does this, you say, no, they don't, they do this. And then I say, no, they don't, they do this. We've gone down a spiral that we can't get out of and nobody's getting what they want out of the experience. And it's not a matter of somebody getting what they want per se, but having an experience that's meaningful. And if you are endeavoring to yes and, this is one of those that comes back around to you talking about like, let them roll for it, you know? Like, I want to do this thing, and you're like, it doesn't work. That's not going to work in this situation. But you still say, yes, and why don't you roll for that? And then they fail the roll. Then everyone's kind of getting a piece of the experience that they're looking to have, which is I want to try to use this thing, and I want to get you through this experience. That yes and piece, that kind of communication and engagement seems to be key. What do you think? is the key. I would agree with you on on both of those. And and one thing that I've started doing in my campaigns is that very thing at the beginning of the campaign, actually talking to each of the player characters and, and say, okay, I'm going to give a little shout out to Wizards of the Coast here for their uh, latest source book. Tasha's Cauldron of Everything mm-hmm. addresses this really well. It's got a whole chapter on how to kind of do a session zero, how to set some table rules and and guidelines. I think it's really important for the DM to talk with their player characters and player characters to the DM before the whole thing starts. Not about backstory, not about info dump on the world, but what's a hard limit for you that, that will drive you from this table? Right. What are some soft limits that make you uncomfortable? How do we set some table rules? So that kind of communication lays out as you said, the expectations on both sides are kind of how play is going to go, not what's going to happen, but how the table's going right. to be run. Right. Um, now, you can go too far on that, like you can with, with anything, but sure. I think at least kind of reaching out and saying, are we even on the same page here? Because at the end of the day, not every player character is going to fit every DM, and not every DM is going to fit every player. And I think yes-anding is important. And I think in a non-performative play let's face it what you and i are doing these days is performative play on a for a podcast right we're trying to entertain other people but in a non-performative i I think it's really important for the player characters to yes and each other more so than the dm to sure because nobody likes that one player who consistently refuses to engage with everybody else at the table right yeah and and really that's what you're that's what you're going for is certainly that's something that can be dealt with and if everyone knows again the expectation is that maybe this one player is going to go their own route and that's the way your table develops in your campaign and your party fine that's a character driven choice not a player-driven choice. Right. And to have a player not being willing to engage with the other people at the table tells me that they don't belong at that table. Right. So I have a story. Early on, I was seeking some games uh, just to get more experience. And um, I joined it. You know where I'm going. I joined an online game. And on Discord, they have looking for party places. And so... I had read about this one. It sounded like a a fun campaign setting. It was a neat idea. I was like, oh, well, that'll be perfect. And it was one that made it seem like it was going to be easy to kind of stop by. So I was like 100% on this and jumped in. And they seemed to have lost a lot of PCs, and I didn't know why. 
my first session realized it was because the DM was actively attempting to create sexual scenarios with every PC that came in into the game without having told them that that's what it was going to be and without getting their engagement or permission or anything. Consent is important, dear <laughs> listeners. Consent is in so every case. Important. And it was one of those things that made me really, really value the importance of those pre-campaign conversations where you're like, what are your hard stops? Like, right. what are the things that are not okay for you? Because some people would be great with sex in a campaign. Some people are seeking that, and that's super. Some campaigns would be okay that way. But sex in front of the screen is one that you really want consent of every person at that table Absolutely. before you throw them into that situation. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's a funny story now, but it's not a funny story. And I remember <laughs> you struggling with that because you wanted to play and it sounded like an interesting world, but you were not okay with the situation. And that's very true. I don't have any problem with an adult campaign. Not at all. But everybody got to be on the same page about that before you do it. I think that's also an example of what we were talking about earlier, where the DM was driving a narrative that didn't take into account the wants, desires, whatever of the characters. Exactly. The DM had a narrative in their head and they were driving it that direction regardless of what the player characters had, didn't have, wanted to do, etc. I also think on this, on Hervin's question, in addition to expectation setting, communication during as well. Everybody at the table has to be willing. They have to be willing to be engaged mm -hmm. by the story. Yep. So the DM is spending a lot of time creating a story. The player characters have to be willing to, to be interested in that story and let it take them. If all they're interested in is the next point when they get to show off a mechanic that's not going to be fun for anybody and that's really not the dm's fault right the player character has to be willing to engage on all levels with everybody at the table yep the dm has to be willing to engage with the characters when the characters again want to do that crazy thing or they want to go explore go talk to sam snorkel rather than the you know the ranger in the corner uh, the dm has to be willing as well everybody at the table has to be ggg yeah. Um, with, what does GGG mean, Lance? Uh, I don't remember, but it's a shorthand for being willing and, and game. <laughs> it's good giving and game. Okay. And that's really important. And I think we've both played at some tables before where there were DMs, again, who really weren't interested in right. what the players were interested in. And uh, where there were players who completely tuned out. Uh, they wouldn't engage with the other players yep. at all. Like in the capacity of even when their character was engaging with another character they would only do it through the medium of the dm right and the rest of the time when it wasn't combat or whatever they'd sit and stare at their phone or mess around with this that or the other thing so and I do you think there's a difference between not being someone who's super confident in role play and being someone who's checked out you don't have to be a confident in role play mm -hmm. at all to be no. engaged and willing exactly and you're exactly right. If you're just checked out waiting for your turn again, then, then you're not, don't want to beat that dead horse. But I think that's really important. And I think from a DM standpoint, the, the last thing, the characters 
have also taken time to create a person that they want to mm-hmm. play. Yeah. And the DM needs to be aware of that. And the DM, I think, is wise to take notes on the characters. Oh, definitely. And to incorporate bits of backstory. I like to, on occasion, take a whole session for each character in a campaign to where this time it's this character's time yep. to have something. In this time, it's this one. Every player feels special. Yeah. It's also challenging as a DM, in a fun way, to make sure that there's something for everybody in every session. Right. It's hard. Yeah. You can't just, you can, you can't just draw a map and populate it with random selections from the monster manual and call it a role-playing session. Hmm. Um, Some people do. Yeah. But I think it takes all those other things. Yeah. To answer Herbin's question, which is, how do the players and DM work together to get what everybody wants and neither side feels bored or uninterested? Well, and being willing to identify what people want has to be part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a huge question. I think that that was a really important question. question, Yeah. Yeah. On a related our other uh, ranger friend, uh, our <laughs> so half orc. I know so many rangers with questions. Is it the nature of being a ranger that oh, you question? Do you question? Uh, our half elk, half elk. He's a half <laughs> elk. Half elk. Wow. <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, <laughs> is that like a centaur? Elk? Uh, <laughs> it is. That would be so big. Uh, they're there. They're alciids. Um, okay. So our half orc, half elf. <laughs> well, ranger, I'm glad we answered that question. Our half orc, half elf ranger friend, Damios. Uh, wanted to know, as a DM and storyteller, how do you keep a game interesting and challenging to the players to where they keep coming back session after session? Screw those players. Right? <laughs> but I, I put these together because I think they're related. I think Yeah, no, I questions. think you're right. So, yeah, again, I think a big chunk of that comes from communication and paying attention to what they're saying and doing. Mm-hmm. There's a thing that I like to do at the end of my sessions. I like to do what I call wishes and stars, mm. where I'm like, um, what do you wish had happened? Or what do you wish you'd been able to do? Or what do you wish you'd seen? And then stars, which are what were the things that you loved? I wish I'd been able to use my cloak of elven kind <laughs> where they had had to roll with disadvantage to see me, Reagan. That's what I wish had happened. <laughs> yeah. You know what? That was six months ago, Lance. <laughs> you just calm down. Like, those are the things that happen, and that is one of those moments where you can identify something that you're like, this seems like a big deal to the player character. I think maybe I'll give them the opportunity to do that in the future. But also, it identifies the things that bring delight to your characters, Um, especially if you kind of throw out there, all right, what are your stars from this session, and just let the PCs talk. Now, this doesn't work as well in a duet, because then it's just one person talking, but letting them share what their delights were can help you figure out opportunities to bring more of that into future gameplay. So somebody saying, I really loved that I got to use this mechanic tonight, you go, okay, I I need to give more options for them to explore their mechanics and to do this kind of thing. Well, and all feedback is good feedback, right? Right. Exactly. When you're creating a story together. Well, if there's something people hate, that can be really good. Like you can drill down as the DM and ask yourself, did they hate it because it was good storytelling and it's hard? Or did they hate it because it didn't work and I need to figure out why it didn't work? Right. So what do you you think on that Well, I agree with you. I like your your kind of feedback system there at the end. I think it's always a, a good touchstone with any group of people 
especially in this situation, to touch base periodically. Again, if you're going to go through the trouble of before you start a new campaign, setting expectations and so on, well, for one thing, at the end of every session, you're making sure that you're actually doing what you said you were going to do. Absolutely. Right? And it allows people to kind of crow and, and pump themselves up about stuff that they did well or that they really liked, or other players to pump up somebody else. I really like, on occasion, allowing other players to give inspiration to each other. Oh, I love that. Rather than having yeah. inspiration come strictly from a DM. For those who may not know what that is, inspiration is a mechanic in the player's handbook that I think it's new to 5th edition. Basically, is like a divine, uh, it lets you re-roll something if you if I you think it's so it. underused. It's to, super uh, like underused. People forget about it all the time. All the time. So I like that kind of feedback loop. But I would answer Damios as well by saying, I don't even think you have to be the best storyteller in the world. Oh, no. Some of the best D&D &D and storytelling really is genre stuff. It's stuff we've heard so many times that are tropes and archetypes and nothing that you do has to be brand new and fresh. Exactly. What you have to do though is a, tell it in a way that is communicating with your players, letting them do at least try the things they want to try, telling a good story even if it's not a new story, but involving them with communication and then giving them the opportunity to shine as well as the opportunity to fail. Yeah. Ties in a lot as well to what Hervin um, asked, but you I think they're great. Sorry, go ahead. No, no I, you just hit upon something too that reminded me. I also think that when possible, engaging your players uh, to feel like there are real stakes yeah. too, like not wanting their character to die or not wanting to lose the world can be really it, it's not something that you can necessarily guarantee will happen but it's lovely when you get it can i give you a little piece of something that i that i think i figured out on that sure what seems to me to really capture players and get them engaged with that stakes question is not the threat of extinction to their character sure yeah it's bring something to your story that they begin to value. Yes. And then threaten that. Right, right. But never kill the dog. Not e for us. Ever. Ever. No. Don't Not kill someone's horse. Don't kill someone's dog. Right. That way you get them engaged. You give them stakes. Because really at the end of the day in a game here, if we have to roll up another player character, we roll up another player character and, and move on. Give them something to care about that isn't themselves, and then put that thing in hazard. Yeah. And yeah. they will be on the edge of their seat. Yeah. To see what happens and to make a favorable outcome. Exactly. We could get into a whole class on storytelling and <laughs> climax and, and all that. Oh. But let's not. We did kind of talk about no. climax earlier, no. didn't we? No. Do we have other questions, Lance? I have one more question for one you. One more question. I All do. Right. And then you know what we need to do? We need to talk about our favorite we cantrips. We need to talk about cantrips. I know. But here's a question for you. And, and this, this was brought up by uh, our listener, McKaylee. And I think it's a great question. If you were trapped in an elevator with a D&D <laughs> monster, what would it be and why? 
Wow, that's uh, realistically, because this is a question that should be answered with the word starting realistically. Absolutely. Um, I would it's bring reason, rationality, and science into this. <laughs> Let's get some empiric evidence here, Reagan. I think I would be trapped in an elevator with a knoll because a knoll, a knoll, because I ran for the elevator, nearly missed it, and didn't notice the stinking claw that opened the door for oh, me. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then I wouldn't be sure if I should make eye contact or not, so I would just be staring forward as it slathered behind me, not sure if it was going to tear my throat out from behind or whether it just had some breathing issues, and I wouldn't want to embarrass That it. is a good thing because, frankly, you wouldn't have time to avoid eye contact as it tore you to shreds. It's true. I couldn't even get turned around no, in that no, elevator. No. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Lance? Gelatinous cube, Reagan. Really? Yeah. How would you get into the elevator? Would you notice it was there? Would you just enter the cube? I would also, uh, probably I'd get in the elevator and the cube would then kind of slurp through that. You know how in, in oh. like Die Hard and all these movies, there's always- The little opening. There's always an opening in the roof of the elevator I think I would get in there, and of course, elevators are dungeons, right? I mean, oh, you got a totally. big vertical. I mean, under every circumstance, you got a big vertical shaft. You got a room, you know, vertical shaft. That's like <laughs> the dragon question. You know what there is in an um, elevator, though, is treasure. It's true. Well, maybe did somebody drop their lipstick? You don't know. <laughs> but I think a cube would drop out of that hatch as soon mm. as the doors closed. Yep. And really, it's a perfect place for a gelatinous cube. I mean, it's already shaped that way. You know what you I'm picturing? You can't get away. It just drops in there, and you it's like... You just have, like, a little drip drip, and a bone would fall out, and yeah. you'd look up right as it came through right that Right as shaft. it came down. So dramatic. You know, and if not a gelatinous cube, then maybe a black pudding or a news. Something's coming out of something, that hole. Something drippy yeah. that's definitely going to consume just, your skin. I just love the idea of when the elevator gets to the fourth floor, <laughs> and the door's open, there's me... <laughs> Stuck, you know, sideways, my flesh uh, going to skeleton in the middle of this elevator full of jello. Yeah, yeah. And everybody just kind of looks as I dissolve and the doors close Ding. and it goes on up to the seventh floor. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I love that idea. I think okay, it's so also the worst jello salad ever, but yeah. Well, it's, it's basically aspic, right? <laughs> it's, meat, it's, it's meat jello at that point. <laughs> Okay, so Noel for you. Noel for me. And Gelatinous Cube for me. Gelatinous Cube for you. Uh, dear listener, let us know what classic D&D monster you'd like to be stuck in an elevator with by going to our website, myfavoritecantrip.com, and dropping us a line. We definitely want to know, know. Shout it out on Twitter. Heck at yes. MyFaveCantrip. Speaking of favorite cantrips, Reagan. Lance, I think you should go first on this one. Tired of me asking questions tonight? I so am. You know what I'm going to say is my favorite cantrip tonight? What's your favorite cantrip? Spare the dying. Really? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Tell me why. Is that the one that you picked? It's not. Thank God. Let me tell you why. Let me ask you a question. How many times have you been second level? <laughs> many. And the Knolls are oh. raiding your caravan. Gotten right on my elevator. And they knock you down. Mm. You're out. Yep. You're Down out. for the count. Yep. You make a death save, you fail. Yep. You make another one, you pass. It all hinges on the next one. Lo and behold, your cleric's still up. And thank 
all the deities in Greyhawk that cast Spare the Dying on you. And you know what? You no longer have to make those death saves. That's right. In an hour and a half, stabilized. you've stabilized. In an hour and a half, you'll pop back up with a hit point and everything will be fine. Just the one. I think we, as players, yes. concentrate a lot on the healing spells. Right. But really, at the end of the day, particularly hard-fought battle, you're out of spell slots. Yep. You don't have any potions. Just cast Spare the Dying. And they're not going to die. It's a cantrip. Didn't it's take a, a spell slot. So, takes an action. You got to touch somebody. I touch myself. No, it doesn't no, work you on don't, you. You don't touch yourself. You got to touch somebody else. You got to touch somebody else. Uh, verbal and somatic components, which means you got to wave your hands. And it's instantaneous. You touch a living creature that has zero hit points. Bitch slap. The creature becomes stable. This spell has no effect on undead or constructs. <laughs> there you go. I mean, there you go. It's overlooked often and i think when people divine characters pick up their initial spells they're looking for damage they're looking for helpful stuff they forget about spare the dying and really it's the difference between one of your player characters kicking the bucket because you're out of spell slots and don't have any healing yep being able to just stabilize them so that they pop up at the end of a short rest so they don't die yeah i will say one drawback to that is uh, playing a duet well <laughs> You better hope you've got a divine sidekick. There you go. There you go. Yeah. But it, it is a really nice one. And I agree with you. I think that is often overlooked. Yeah. What do you got? I'll tell you what I've got. And it's one of my favorites. And I know it's one of your favorites, too. Um, this is from Xanathar's Guide to oh, Everything. Yeah. Right. Think you can guess what it is? That sneaky beholder. That sneaky beholder. He's got so much good to I say. I think I can. Is there a bell involved, There Reagan? is a bell. Yes. You know this is one of my favorites I anyway. I do. Toll the dead. Yep. I'm going to go ahead and read it to hey, you Hey, can I tell you really quick how odd it is that we both pick necromancy cantrips? Uh, it's not odd. We're dark, dark people. That's true. Drawn to the necromancy. I've got a table full of bones over here. I know you do. Yeah. I can't see it from where I'm sitting. And I ain't I talking about dragons. But <laughs> Yes. It has a casting time of one action, right. a range of 60 feet. Oh. It is verbal oh. and somatic. There's no stuff that you need. 60 you feet is, is 60 a big feet range is good for a cantrip. For a cantrip. Yeah. 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 It's part of what I like about it. Yeah. I like that you don't actually have to have a bell for this mm. because no one ever nice. wants to take the, back, the pack with a bell. Particularly when there's somebody who comes along and takes the clapper off your bell with their <laughs> thieves tools. With their thieves tools. And you're like, hey, I was going to toll the dead. They're like, too bad. <laughs> you can't. No. Nope. And its duration is instantaneous. So here's what happens. You point. Mm. It's very specific. Is that, is that the somatic gonna, component you're there? you point. <laughs> That's literally it. You don't wave your fingers in arcane sigils. No. You just you point. You just point. Yep. You're like you. You. Um, you point at one creature you can see within range, which mm. is 60 feet, and mm. the sound of a dolorous bell. Dolorous, you say? Dolorous. What does that sound like, Reagan? I don't think that I can mimic a dolorous bell. My voice is too high. Bong. There you go. Bong. Ask not for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for you <laughs> as I point at the far corner. You. Of the so the sound of this dolorous bell fills the air around what you're pointing at for a moment. The target must succeed on a wisdom save. Oh, yep, yep. Or it takes 1d8 necrotic What's your damage. spell save to see? I'm going to roll for it right now to see whether I save. Reagan's spell save DC? Yeah, what's your spell save DC? Uh, I don't know, 15. I failed. Uh, you got a dolorous bell on your head, man. Boom. So here's the real question, though. What's the damage? 1d8. <laughs> I'm going to roll my favorite d8. <laughs> roll it. 
That's a four. You're going to take four points of necrotic That'll damage. That'll probably kill me because I'm a commoner. But wait, there's more. Hmm. Have you taken any other damage today? Yeah. I'd say you have. I have, for sure. Uh, you don't do that, D8. Now you're rolling a D12. Shit. Roll that D12. Shit. Reagan, it's 11 points. What? I'm dead. Now you're down. I'm dead. You're 100% down. Sorry, guys. Uh, Lance is down. If only I had spared the dying. <laughs> <laughs> or the dog did. Or the dog did. So if the target is missing any of its hit points, it takes a D12 That's instead huge. of that D8. That's necrotic That's damage. It's so good. And of course, the spell's damage increases by one die when you reach 5th, 11th, and 17th levels. So if Does that, it affect undead? Yeah. Apparently huh. it does. Fascinating. Yeah. Here's the thing. With the title, you would think maybe it would have a stronger or lesser effect on dead. It does not. Right. But it is. it does do more damage, more of that necrotic damage, if they're missing hit points. I don't know. Do dead just automatically Does a miss zombie automatically have less hit points? I mean, you'd think they would. Clearly, when they were living, they had more hit points, right? Maybe. Or did they? Did they? They've been toughened by undeath. It would toughen me. It probably going to toughen me, as apparently you killed me just now <laughs> with Toll the Dead. Apparently, I had Spare the Dying, because here you are. Oh. No, I think it was the dog. Oh. I think dog kisses uh, naturally are Spare the Dying. I've heard that before. Yeah. I've read that. Dear listener. Dear reader. We'd love to hear what your favorite cantrip is. We sure would. Do a roundup. Okay, you go say? ahead. You so, start. you can find both of us on Instagram. I am at destiny underscore manifest. Reagan, what's your Instagram handle? I am at the underscore goddess divine. We've got a website. We sure listener. do. It's called myfavoritecantrip.com. And you can send us all your thoughts on what your favorite cantrip is or questions for us for an upcoming talking head. And hey, you know what? what? We posted a cantrip there just a couple of days ago. We did. We yes. put up Cockabee Horcus Porcus's Cone of Violence. Cone of Violence. Yeah. <laughs> um, they can also find us on Twitter at my fave cantrip, right. M-Y-F-A-V-C-A-N-T-R-I-P. And we really hope that you'll support us on Patreon. And uh, if that's not within your means, hey, tell your friends about us. Write us a review. Um, let us know what you think. We'd really love to hear from you. We love playing D&D and talking D&D with people. And we think you look really nice today. I don't know what you've done, but but you look good today. Well, I think they've been around a red dragon, don't you? <laughs> or a silver one. Or a gelatinous cube. They have not been around a gelatinous cube. Hey, friends. <laughs> thanks for joining us on my favorite cantrip. Have a great one. This has been another Weird Mimosa.